It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And today I have to save you from murder and tragedy because there is a fantastic true crime podcast that is coming out next Friday or today or whatever. There's a true crime podcast coming out that you have to dive into and you will be so intrigued, so satisfied Uh, In the beginning, you will be confused. You will have a lot of questions. Those questions will find answers. However, the answers will lead to more questions, which is what makes a true crime story so incredibly compelling. So it is now time for me to turn to one of my compatriots, a Fox News co-worker who has worked with the investigative journalism team here for years. And, And she spent a good chunk of her life in recent years, finding out the very details of this story that is so intriguing, it's so confusing, and even though it happened long, long ago, there are so many things about it that make it feel as fresh as any true crime story that could be ripped from today's headlines, even though there's no more ripping because everything is digital. All right, well, with me now, Christina Corbin. Welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Wow, that was quite an introduction. Kennedy, thank you so much for having me. All right, so I don't I don't listen to true crime podcasts because they usually creep me out. <laughs> um, my favorite movie is Silence of the Lambs, even though I don't like tense movies and I don't like scary movies. Well, that's a scary one. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so put your mouth closer to the microphone. There we go. Here. Yes. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Okay, so Christina Corbin. When did you find out about this murder that took place in 1981, a young man and a young woman, a cold case, a double murder, unknown victims, victims unknown for almost 40 years? Mm-hmm. When did you first hear about uh, the the couple that was dubbed Romeo and Juliet, even though technically they were John Doe and Jane Doe? Right. So first, let me say that I don't really believe in covering crime for the purpose of entertainment. But if I can find a really compelling cold case and I can advance that with my reporting, I find a huge sense of purpose in that. And back in January, I was looking for my next story. I was interested in doing another podcast. I already had one under my belt that did really well. And so I was reading a report in the Houston Chronicle that really grabbed me. And it was about a couple, uh, a young married couple who'd been found in the woods just outside of Houston in the winter of 1981. Uh, They were both brutally murdered. um, And in 1981, the law enforcement was not able to identify them. And as you point out in the podcast, like forensic science was in its infancy. You know, we see shows like CSI and everything else and Law and Order, and we just assume, you know, all you need is a fiber or a molecule of DNA, and the entire crime is solved. But that was not the case in 1981. Yeah, that's a really, really good point, because a lot of people listening to this podcast are younger people, and they don't remember that in 1981, 
That's exactly right. Forensics was in its infancy. And so when this couple was found, there really wasn't much at the crime scene. Uh, I was the first reporter to obtain the entire case file. And I can say that there was really just a bloody towel and a pair of green gym shorts. Size 25. That's right. Wow. I am impressed at how well you have researched this. Um, And so they were not able to really uh, identify who this couple was. Uh, There was no missing persons report. And it's so unusual for two people to go missing at the same time, to both end up murdered in the same spot, and no one knows who they are. Well, and and as you point out in the podcast, it's not unusual for men either two men or a group of men to be dumped by a serial killer in one spot, or in the case of the Texas killing fields between Galveston and El Paso, Mm -hmm. correct? Um, That there were dozens of women who were found and, you know, their cases have gone unsolved, but so rare that a couple that, and they called them Romeo and Juliet because they were essentially the same age. That's one of the things that the coroner figured out was uh, Juliet was a, a few years younger than Romeo, but, you know, they were, they they looked like a match, but not a genetic match, so they assumed that they were a couple. That's right. Um, and he was very young. She was very young. Um, and great teeth, as you pointed great, out. Yes, the, the, the medical examiner at the time did, did remark that this was obviously a pair that had good um, dental hygiene, had been to the doctor. Um, But they tried to take the female doe's dental records and see if they matched up against some missing women in the area, and they had no luck. So for all these years, this couple, they went unidentified. They were buried in a potter's field in Houston. And for people who don't know what a potter's field is, well, that's where you bury people who have either been unclaimed or unidentified. So no headstone, nobody to visit them. And that was the end of it until fast forward to 2011 when a group of forensic anthropologists decided to exhume their remains as part of a bigger project to identify um unidentified murder victims. So I wanted to ask you about that because I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Did it occur to them in, you know, the advancement of, of science and even osseology that the ways they are able to identify people, essentially no murdered person uh, leaves a, a clueless crime scene. Like there is something in mm-hmm. our physiology that remains that can tell Mm-hmm. teams of people like that who we are. Mm-hmm. So I think by 2011, with the advancements that had been made um, in the way of DNA technology and forensics, there was a hope that if we exhume those remains, we might be able to identify this couple. Um, and so when they ide- when they exhumed the remains, they extracted DNA, but still no luck. And that they had the genomic sequence. They, they used every tool at their disposal that could tell them every conceivable thing about this pair Mm -hmm. so and and your genealogist in the podcast says you know we can get in the tooth we can get the Mm -hmm. bone we can get the goods they have the goods and and Mm -hmm. still and so so then where do you go so they were i would say about 10 years too early because it wasn't until the fall of 2021 when these two amazing forensic genetic genealogists working for a company called Identifinders decided to take on this case. And so they used those DNA profiles. They uploaded them into something called GEDmatch. 
And from there, they were able to link their DNA to familial DNA in other states. And so they were able to determine who their relatives were and build out this elaborate family tree. So let me let me just ask you this really quickly. Where do they get the DNA from the families? Are these people who are like, we have someone missing in our life. Uh, we're going to give you our DNA can you please help us find them? Is is that what it is? Or is it like these are people who've been arrested and the government has taken so, their samples? Yeah. So basically their DNA, pri- their DNA profiles were sitting in a lab somewhere um, after having been exhumed in 2011. So those profiles were shipped to these two genetic genealogists. And then they uploaded them into something called GEDmatch, which is a consortium of like different DNA consumer databases, you know how people do this Ancestry.com and they load their DNA in to see, you know, if they have, you know, Norwegian ancestry or whatnot. So what happened here was that when they uploaded this couple's DNA profile, they got a familial match to a relative in Kentucky. Hmm. So by basically going to that relative in Kentucky and building out the family tree, these elaborate family trees, they're then able to kind of hone in and figure out, well, who from that family tree disappeared or is deceased, and we go from there. So basically, they had a really strong lead. They thought that the man was a man named Harold Dean Klaus Jr. They were pretty sure about that, so they called his family in New Smyrna, Florida, and I believe the, the man's sister answered the phone, and Allison Peacock, one of the ge- genetic genealogists, said to her, do you have uh, a relative who's gone missing? And she said, yeah, my brother, Haroldine Klaus. And Allison said, well, I think that we found him. And then they said, well, what about his wife? And she said, well, we found him with a young woman, so that must be— With long red hair. With long red hair, so that must be his wife, Tina. And then it was the big shocker. What about their 10-month-old baby? And the genetic genealogists were like, there's a baby? This is so crazy. There's a baby? So— That's okay, but so that's what I'm talking about. When I I said— at the beginning, like, you get some answers to questions, and, you know, imagine being the sister who gets the call, and they said, we found your brother. You know, for a second, you have to think, oh, my God, he's still alive. And then you realize, like, oh, okay, they, they found his body. Okay, well, at least we get some closure. And then we get to the name of her podcast. What about Holly? Exactly. What about Holly? So Holly's the 10-month-old baby. Sorry, I don't mean to yell. Holly, if Holly were alive today, she'd be 42 years old. What happened to this baby? Did she perish in the woods like her parents? And And, and by the way, let's let's tell the party people how they found the remains, which, you know, you went to that wooded area outside of Houston. They could have they could have been consumed by animals for years and, you know, no one ever would have stumbled upon them, but a German shepherd from a pack of four from a nice family across the, at the time, gravel road, Heidi, the mom of the German shepherds, went over, uh, found an arm, took it back to the sun, dropped it, was like, hey, check this out. And then Heidi, the German shepherd, took the human mom deep into the woods and found Romeo and Juliet. Now we know them as Dean and Tina. Wow. Well, that's a really good synopsis. (laughs) 
That is absolutely correct, all of that. And so now you have all sorts of theories swirling. Did the baby perish in the woods and they just overlooked her tiny remains or animals made off with the remains? Um, Did they target the young couple because they had this beautiful 10-month-old baby and they were going to do whatever it took to take the baby? Right. So, And you have covered missing children before and, and you have been to this very sad rodeo. Right. My, my Almost my entire career in news has been devoted to missing children. And so when I heard this, I had to see the woods for myself. So I flew to Houston. I had uh, Lieutenant Bobby Minshew with the Harris County Sheriff's Office take me into the woods. Who had 645 cold case files. You know, you got a really good memory, I have to say. I was using my listening ears because this podcast is fantastic. Like, it's, it really, it is so compelling. Every new person that we meet along the way, we get completely emotionally invested in their journey, even if it's just the cold case investigator. We haven't even gotten to Dean's family yet. You know this case just as well as I do, which is really remarkable. Don't go anywhere. More Kennedy saves the world right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So there were so many theories about this. Um, What happened to this baby? Is she alive? Big, big question mark. And so then I decided to travel to Florida to meet with the family and to basically dive right into this couple's life. Who were they? How did they grow up? Um, You know, and how did they end up in Texas? And what I found out, it was almost like a mystery wrapped in another and another and another. I found out that Dean Klaus at some point had some involvement in a cult in a nomadic religious cult. We didn't know what the name of this cult was, but that's what they told me. And he told his family that he was moving to Texas with his wife and 10-month-old baby to start a job in construction. And as far as they knew, the cult was totally out of his life. Because he he joined the cult as a relatively young adolescent. He was 15. Right. And so, you know, at at this point, he's 21, 22, mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, peace out. And, you know, who hasn't had a little wanderlust uh, in in their early adulthood where you, you want to find yourself and plant some roots in a place that's not necessarily too familiar? Right. And so he was a skilled cabinet maker. He got offered a big construction job with the company D.R. Horton, which is just outside of Dallas. And so he told his family, I've got this great job. I can build a better life for my family out there. So he moves out there. Well, one of the first things I did was I contacted D.R. Horton, and they had no record of him ever working there. And so I did some further digging, and I came to find out that he reconnected with this cult um, at some point when they moved out there. Before or after they got to Texas? I believe it was when they got to Texas, and they settled in an apartment in Louisville, which is a suburb of Dallas. So how they ended up in woods outside of Houston, which is Dallas-Houston really far apart, is a big mystery. But then as I did some further research here, I learned that they joined this cult, and they were likely traveling around the United States with this cult at the time. And 
A big break in this case came in June when the Texas Attorney General announced they found Holly. <gasps> I haven't gotten that far on the podcast. <laughs> Did I just spoil it? Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. No, I can't wait to listen to the rest of it. This is amazing. <laughs> so it's like, I'm I'm three episodes in. There are nine episodes, correct? There are nine episodes. Yeah, so yes. I'm three ep- so I'm a third of the way through this. But mm-hmm. now, now I gotta, I gotta do the full deep dive. I was, mm-hmm. I was listening to it when I was walking. I was scowling at people. I was listening to it on the bike. Like this, this is really so okay. Because <laughs> I knew that uh, there would be more resources from the state of Texas mm-hmm. because they had uh, developed this new cold case unit through the attorney general's office. Yes, and this was, if I'm not mistaken, the first case. Yes, and General Ken Paxton deserves a lot of credit for that. I spoke to him on the phone about this unit. He formed it two years ago, and this unit is totally dedicated to cold cases, which, as we know, cold cases are never a priority in police departments everywhere. And so this was really a unique thing that he formed, and this was their first case, and they had this huge break. But that break only led to so many more questions. Did they find her? They did find her. Is she in a cult? They found her alive and well in Oklahoma. And the story goes something like this. In late 1980, early 1981, two robed women from a nomadic religious cult dropped her off at a church in Yuma, Arizona. And she was raised by the pastor of that church, who, I should just be clear, has absolutely no wrongdoing in any of this he was the pastor yeah, he's of He's doing church. the Lord's work. He's trying to take care of a baby. He doesn't know where the baby is. He raised Holly. And so then there were all kinds of questions. Well, who were these women? What group did they belong to? And in my investigation, I uncovered that the name of this group was a group called the Christ Family. It was founded by a man named uh, Charles McHugh, Lightning Amen. Um, and, you know— Did they wear her headbands in the 70s? Well— They wore, the women wore white scarves around their heads, and the men wore cloth baby diapers around their heads. Okay, because if I'm not mistaken, and I might be mistaken, um, a hundred foot wave. Did you see that on HBO? I heard about it. Garrett McNamara, who was the star of that, his mom got into a cult, and it sounds like these people, because there was a, a Christ someone and a... Uh, you know, there's always a charismatic guy who's mm-hmm. like the Jesus-y person who might have called mm-hmm. himself Jesus or Larry Christ or something like that. But it sounds like the same people. It's really interesting that you bring that up because at this time in the United States, in the 70s, early 80s, these groups were so common. The 1971 cover of Time magazine featured the Jesus movement, and people called them like the Jesus freaks. So there were tons of groups like this at the time. Oh, I grew up in Oregon. I know. I mean, that's where the Rajneeshis were. Like, I, my friend's dad left the family to go to Antelope, Oregon, and, and joined, you know, Rajneesh Puram and, and totally asked out. And uh, but there were so many freaky people. Like, my mom was so adamantly anti-hitchhiking because of the culty, hippie, weirdo freaks that were all over Oregon and Northern California. That's so We, we were silly with them. Yeah, well, Like, that's... if you didn't look like Jesus, they wouldn't let you in a country club. It was almost that bad. Or that good. I mean, I guess depending on your... 
That's so interesting. You know, when we think of cults today, we tend to think of people like Charles Manson or, um, you know, Waco. But at that time, you had a lot of these groups and the vast majority of them were nonviolent, you know, just peaceful people. They might have been strange to outsiders, but they were harmless. They just just wanted to have sex with a bunch of other people so they had to make it sound like utopia like you can't you can't be like hey uh we should all just kind of get naked and hang out i mean you have to have a promise it's either like well Uh we're gonna make so much money but we have to bone each other constantly and there's a there's a direct correlation between how much boning we do in our diapers and how much money we're gonna make so let's start Yes, well, that's a very colorful way to describe it. So, um, yeah, so basically I found out that it was the Christ family that they had joined, and this particular group didn't really allow children to be uh, traveling with them when they were sort of wandering the country. So kids were often given to relatives or dropped at churches. So. So basically, so then we so we learned that Holly was dropped off at this church by these two women. And then we also learn about someone by the name of Sister Susan. Sister Susan was, I do not like the sound of Sister Susan, not one bit. Sister Susan was a member of the Christ is a member of the Christ family, I should say. And Sister Susan has a role in all of this because sometime in 1981, Sister Susan drove Dean's car from the Arizona California border all the way to Florida to return it to his mother oh, because this was a group that did brave. not believe in material possessions. Yes. So they wanted to liquidate and give away any kind of material possessions and they decided to drive the car back. So for 40 years, Donna Casasanta, Dean's mother, has been sort of haunted by this woman. Who is she? What did she know about my son? She returned the car. And at the attorney press at the attorney general's press conference in June, they name Sister Susan as somebody they want to speak with. So Kennedy, for weeks, I was trying to find Sister Susan. I didn't know if she was still alive. I didn't even know what her real name was. And I got it's a- Gretchen Carlson. <laughs> so in September, as I'm making the final edits to my podcast, I get a phone call from a number I don't recognize. And I thought it was a spam call, but I answered it anyway. And guess what? It was Sister Susan. Stop it right now. She found out you were working on this story. She's like, I'm reformed. I have to unburden my soul. I didn't have anything to do with that horrible double murder. And by the way, uh, Dean was bashed in the head and Tina was strangled to death. Like, this this was not a peaceful exit it from was really this mortal brutal. coil. It was absolutely brutal and and they weren't buried right next to each other they were like 100 feet apart yeah so so you know i said to sister susan listen if you had nothing to do with this crime um if you didn't even know dean and tina personally like you should go on the record and clear your name and she thought about it she wasn't sure And then she said, okay, well, I will give you my version of events if you promise not to disclose where I live or my real name. Because in fairness, she has not been named a suspect. She has not been implicated by authorities in any wrongdoing in this. And so this was something I agreed to. So I got on a plane and I flew somewhere. To where she is. To where she is. And I interviewed Sister Susan for hours. Did you get a creepy feeling when you met her? She was very nice. Okay. She was very polite. But did, you, did the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? They didn't. 
She was she was polite. She was nice. She was dressed in a white tunic, white pants. Is she still in the cult? Um, she's still in the cult. Uh, I found her to be um, very persuasive and compelling, but the biggest takeaway from this interview was that her recollection of events differed wildly from Donna Casasanta, Dean's mother's recollection of events. Sister Susan said, I didn't return the car at midnight. I returned it in the middle of the day. I never demanded $1,000. I just asked for gas. I don't believe either of those. Sorry. She said to, she said Donna never asked about her son. I don't believe that either. There's absolutely no, there's no way in H-E double hockey sticks she didn't have a million questions. I don't believe a word of that. So the stories were dramatically different. And that and by was the way, my biggest takeaway. Guess what? This is Kennedy Saves the World. Not Kennedy is required to be objective about everything. I don't have to be. I can be completely judgmental. That's why it's great to be me, because I'm not the journalist here. <laughs> I'm just the person consuming some really compelling content and information, and I am talking to the journalist. So the journalist, she is withholding her judgmental opinions. I do not have to do that. I will I will speak for both of us. <laughs> As you were. So after that interview, I was just like, well, how do I reconcile these differences? You know, this was a group that routinely returned belongings to people. So could Sister Susan be confusing that encounter with another encounter? It was 40 years ago. Um, And I really have no explanation as to why the stories were so different. But I guess that's up to investigators to probe, not me. Um, But that was an exclusive interview with Sister Susan. Nobody else has found her. Did you tell Ken Paxson where she is? (laughs) I think they know. I think actually they have interviewed her. It would be interesting to compare her interview with investigators to my interview. Oh, they'll be listening. I think they'll be listening. And so, uh, yeah, so that was really a big uh, bombshell development. We are the only uh, outlet to have that. You know, a lot of networks have covered this story since June when the news broke that Holly had been located. We were on it months earlier, but, you know, other, other networks have been on this. But we are the only ones who have interviewed Sister Susan to get her version of events. And she said, look, the Christ family, one of their major tenants was nonviolence. We couldn't even kill a mosquito. I mean, we couldn't even. Okay, then if if you are all about nonviolence, which I will give them that, sure, nonviolence all the way, you would do whatever you could if a family member of yours and his wife were murdered. You would do everything in your power to mm-hmm. solve that murder and bring someone to justice. Yes. And all of that can be done nonviolently. So, you know, if you're dropping the kid off, you're doing it without the parents' knowledge, so you kidnap the child, or you have knowledge that they were murdered, and you didn't report that, then that makes you an accessory. Like, none of that adds up. You could you could list your philosophical tenets, uh, you know, on a CVS receipt if you mm-hmm. wanted to. There are a lot of questions, and also one really big question that I have is, Sister Susan claims that they were at this camp on the Arizona-California border, She says that Tina went off with his sister to, quote, hit the wind. That was their sort of expression for, you know, wandering the country. And Dean left this camp separately with a brother. Well, how did they end up together in the woods outside of Houston 
if they both left the camp separately, you know, husband and wife separated and went their separate ways, how did Dean and Tina end up together murdered in the woods in Houston, Texas? That's a really big question that I have, and no one's been able to answer it. I will say, sounds like they were all driving to Florida, and they they killed these two, and then like, well, we, I guess better drop a car, that would make us look not guilty. Well, the it is interesting that the woods, the spot where they were found, is just a few miles off the I ten ramp. I ten runs from California to Florida. It's one of the absolutely major- right. Interstate. So there's just there's so many questions. And I'll just say that I am not done with this story. I have a few leads that I am pursuing. There's another person I really want to talk to. Um, and so stay tuned for a 10th episode because um, I'm working on it. I, I can't wait. I mean, I can't wait to get through. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> I've got so much to uh, resolve in this story. Did you talk to Holly? So Holly has not reunited with her family in person yet due to COVID and everything. They've they met on Zoom. The reunion is scheduled for Friday the 4th when our podcast actually comes out, which is kind of cool. And so I'm kind of giving, you know, Holly the sort of privacy until she has a chance to meet her family. She did release a statement to us for our listeners, which was which was very nice. And we hope to speak with her sometime next year when she's ready to sit down with the media. Um, I know she's working on a book. Um, at the moment, so um, she is- Well, she should talk to you because you have really... I know there are other journalists uh, who have, you know, in a very lonely and brave way covered the story mm-hmm. when, you know, there really wasn't a lot to cover. There wasn't a lot there. Right. Uh, but but you have honored this story so much and, and her family and the truth that um, I, I think that in order to close the circle, it would be wonderful for her to speak with you. Thank you, Kennedy. Thank you for that. And I will say, you know, it's a really dark story, yes, but it's so much more than an unsolved murder. There are so many layers to this story, and there are so many silver linings in this story. And so um, it isn't all, you know, death and despair. There, There is a lot of uh, – it's a story of resilience and hope and faith in, in, in the face of undescri- indescribable loss. And so I think, um, you know, there is, there is a happy ending – um, in some respect, and I do think that there's something for everyone in this podcast. Absolutely. Even people like me who are easily spooked, who don't like this stuff, who watch The Crown and Emily in Paris <laughs> because they are, they are not sharp shows. They are not pointy at all. They're they're <sighs> rounded, and they don't hurt your feelings. But this, this podcast is really, like, it really does draw you into the story. I'm, I'm further drawn into it. I... I I'm certain that people who listen will have so many theories about this mm-hmm. and, you know, they could be very helpful in ultimately solving these lingering mysteries. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait for the rest of it. I am going to listen to every single episode. You did a wonderful job narrating it, uh, describing you. each of the people that you spoke to. I thought your writing was beautiful. Um, it it took us right there in every context and it's not a surprise to me that they gave you that complete police file uh, mm-hmm. because you are so honest. And, you know, there's there are a lot of journalists and there are a lot of amateur investigators who have a little bit of an edge who might be off putting to cops. But um, you have a warmth and a natural curiosity that will not only serve this case, 
it might in fact save the world. <laughs> thank you, Kennedy. That's very kind. And I'm so happy to be on your show. And thank you for giving the attention to this podcast. What about Holly? Go listen to it. It's there. It is, it is available for your consumption. Solve the mystery. Help Christina Corbin. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. For more podcasts from my friends at Fox, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. 